and welcome to a special episode of Sustain slash GitHub Maintainer Month. On this episode, we're hoping to interview a few open source maintainers to talk about what it's like to be a maintainer and how awesome they are. Also, maybe what issues they have of being a maintainer and how much that sucks. Very excited to get into that today. I am Richard Litauer. I am your host. I'm here on behalf of Sustain, Open Source Collective, and all the other hats I wear. And enough about me. Our guest today is Mike McQuaid. Mike McQuaid lives in Edinburgh. He works for GitHub and is also one of the main maintainers of Homebrew. Mike, in two sentences or less, what's Homebrew? Homebrew is a Mac and Linux package manager. It's like an app store for your terminal for open source software. Awesome. You are the main maintainer, but not the creator of Homebrew, correct? I'm probably not the most active maintainer. I'm the project leader. It's my democratically elected, apparently titled nowadays. But yeah, I'm the oldest running maintainer who's not the creator. That's right. Who originally created it? A guy called Max Howell. Awesome. What's the size of the community and the usage of Homebrew? Sort of based on our analytics, we reckon sort of millions of users. And we've had, I think, getting to almost tipping towards 10,000 contributors. I think we're probably seven, 8,000 or something right now. And maintainers, I think we have 20 something right now. That's huge. I'm also a user. So thank you for your hard work. Homebrew is awesome. How did you come to maintain this project? And how did the other 20 guys get roped in? Sorry, other 20 people get roped in to do this with you? For me, basically all the open source I've ever done. And it's what I tell people is the best way to get involved with open source was like solving a problem I had for myself. So I basically wanted a package manager on my Mac that didn't rebuild stuff that was already on my Mac. So at first I sort of hacked Mac ports to do it the way I wanted. And then I heard of this homebrew thing and kind of got involved with that and just trying to fix it to make it do the things that I wanted and all that type of stuff. And then I got stuck and could never leave. <laughs> you did actually leave though, right? So you used to be a BDFL in some sense, right? Benevolent dictator for life. And then you managed to actually segue into a more democratic process. Is that yeah. Yeah. I, the project had a while where I sort of asked a few people if I could be a BDFO and they were like, yeah, sure. There was some sort of strife in that decision-making. So eventually kind of pivoted to having like a governance model and I get elected every year. No one's ever run against me and I kind of wish someone would. Note to self, run against <laughs> Mike <do>. next year. <laughs> Set me free, Richard. Tell me about that pivot a bit because pivoting covers all manner of sins. How did that exactly work that you realized it wasn't going to work out? And how did you make the switch elegantly? I don't know that any of it was particularly elegant, but basically, yeah, each kind of switch, I guess we've had from Max being BDFL to sort of it being no one was in charge to me being sort of unofficially in charge to me being officially having the our leadership role. I think each of them was a bunch of drama and tough conversations and People, including me, getting upset, but then we end up kind of iterating to a better model that seems to work better for everyone, at least in the short term. And then we continue to iterate. So I didn't used to be on the project leadership committee, but then we ran out of people who could be on it. So now I'm on it again, and I, but I can't vote now. And yeah, so we just, every few years, we end up changing things just because that's kind of what's required to keep the car on the roads, so to speak. Project management, it sounds like a lot of work figuring out, well, how does this person work with that person? How are we doing on this thing? Do you have any resources you would suggest to other maintainers? 
sleeping. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I guess it's definitely not a part of open source out or work really that I kind of particularly relish, but it's kind of required, I guess. Ultimately, basically everything we do, it breaks down to human relationships and managing those and trying to have an environment where people are happy with each other and something like that. I just wrote, quote, everything we do breaks down, meaning human relationships, but also realized there was something poetic about everything we do breaks down just by itself. So just a misquote you horribly. Well, I guess that's true as well, right? Ultimately, we'll all be soil one day. And I hope with homebrew that I can stop homebrew becoming soil slightly longer. (laughs) Uh, That's a good goal, not soil. It sounds like that's a somewhat fatalistic view, but I think you've been a developer for a long time. You've gone through burnout and out the other side, right? Yeah, I feel like I never really got particularly burned out with homebrew or anything. It's just become a... I guess the closest I came to it was, ironically, the job I had immediately before working on Homebrew, a startup in London where I was in the office for 60, 80 hours a week and getting screamed out for being lazy for leaving at midnight on a Friday when I got there at 7 a.m. I mean, that was pretty damn close. And then, yeah, I think since then, I've always kind of had some sort of sense of moderation. It's the same with Homebrew, like I think, as I've got married and had kids and stuff like that, I just adjust the time and mental energy I can kind of put into it. And in a weird way, I think that probably serves the project better. It's certainly a work I feel like I've done better as I've maybe done a bit more compartmentalizing and I don't stew all weekend over some homebrew or GitHub related problem, but instead go and I don't know, play my kids, watch some Netflix, play some games, etc. <laughs> awesome. Advocating for work-life balance. I like it. You don't work at homebrew during your work hours, right? Kind of. Yeah, no, I'm, I kind sort of, do. of mainly do. Yeah. Like, so it's not exclusively, it's not part of my job. Yeah. But yeah, but I've worked from home for 13 years now. So like working hours is kind of a blurred concept and yep. GitHub has some interest in me, even though it doesn't use homebrew nearly as heavily as ironically, like the way we use homebrew now is mainly on Linux and not on Mac OS, which is kind of funny considering me being yep. a diehard Mac guy and how homebrew started and stuff like that but yeah like it's still in GitHub's interest for me to kind of work on it and I learn stuff that makes GitHub better through homebrew and I learn stuff that makes homebrew better through GitHub so it feels like it mutually reinforces and one of these two things pays my bills as well so it's always nice it's nice it seems like you just have a really sweet spot You've figured out how to make it work. You're kind of a BDFL, but kind of not, which is really nice because you have other people helping you out and there's pretty clear scoping going on. This is rare, in my opinion, to talk to maintainers. So I'm curious, what advice would you give to a first-time open source person? Or which advice do you wish someone had given to you back in the day? I think just strict boundaries, really. Don't do stuff you don't want to do. Don't reward people who are being crappy people. I mean, in open source, there's a lot of people, maintainers, contributors, and users who treat other people really badly. And not the majority of people, but, you know, there's enough throughput of individuals that it's not hard to come across people who treat people badly. And I guess the lesson I which I learned earlier was like, those people are never worth it. Like, no matter how productive they are, no matter how good their issue report was, their PR, ultimately, if that comes at the cost of your or someone else's mental health or happiness or whatever, then that's 
not worth embracing. And I think the other thing is, I guess, there's no one who's really that borderline because to me, the test is if you communicate to someone else that they have in your experience or perception been rude or hurtful or mean or disrespectful or whatever it may be, most people, most of the time will say, hey, I'm sorry. Like their apology might be a little bit of crap, but generally they'll do that. And the bad ones will get incredibly defensive or double down or whatever. And it's just, that never ends well. I still do probably once a year getting big arguments with those people on the internet, but it's not worth it. It doesn't achieve anything. Just stop, block, move on, go on with your life. Stop, block, chop. I like it. This is kind of dour. So I want to ask a fun question. What was the most fun thing about being a maintainer at Homebrew? I think just seeing people using your software and being excited about it. I think for me, the old time peak, just because I'm a massive nerdy Apple fanboy, was like seeing Homebrew do stuff like installing a binary package, which we call pouring a bottle in WWDC when they released the like touch bar and MacBook Retina for the first time. Just seeing like my little bit of code running in the Apple presentation stuff was, it was cool. And it sort of reminds me, I guess, how central Homebrew is to kind of lots of people's workflow. And it's nice to feel like I've paid a, my small part in that. Huge part of my workflow. Every time I get a new laptop, it's like first thing I do is like, all right, let's get brew on there. So thank you for that. How can other people contribute to your project? So there's lots of ways. So one would be money. So we're on Gap Sponsors and Open Collective. Another would be your code. So if you can submit PRs, and by code, I include code and docs and everything that is in GitHub, basically. Another would be helping other people in discussions. And then another way would just be use Homebrew and enjoy it, because ultimately that's why we make it. Awesome. Mike, that's all the time we have for you today. Thank you so much. Listeners, if you're interested in hearing more, we've had Mike and the Sustain podcast before. So do check out that episode. You can find that at podcast.sustainoss.org. You can also find Mike on Twitter at Mike McQuaid. That's M-I-K-E-M-C-Q-U-A-I-D or M-I-K-E-M-C-Q-U-A-I-D.com is his website where you can read cool stuff about being a real live maintainer in the world. Mike, ta. Thanks again. Cheers. Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? How did I get into this sailboat? I don't know. Lots of good questions. Today, we are doing a GitHub Maintainer Month podcast where we are interviewing Nina Bereznik. Nina is an awesome maintainer who I've known about for quite a while, and she's agreed to come on the show to talk about the downfalls, the pitfalls, the joys, the upsides, whatever all the things when it comes to being a maintainer of open source. Nina, thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing today? Hey, thanks for having me. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm, I'm really happy. I've realized coffee is something that I can just have as much as I want at any given point. And that's fine. Perfect. I'm in UK, so I'm on decaf tea, but it also works. <laughs> I feel your pain. I feel your pain. I just actually mixed an espresso with mud water, which is like a non-coffee substitute, but I'm having mud water and coffee. So who knows what I'm on? Nina, let me give some backstory and read your bio. So Nina, born in Yugoslavia, a country that doesn't exist anymore, although Nina is for sure still around, now Slovenia. She studied public administration and Slavic languages with literature while during her MA in communication studies, she co-founded her first project in 2007, a network of computer technicians and tutors to improve digital literacy. 
the startup received an angel investment back in 2009. Service was rolled out in Slovenia. So she is super, super cool right from the start. She moved to Berlin in 2009 and a few years later started learning programming. 2015, she built an app to help refugees connect with locals through volunteering and freelance gigs. Refugeeswork.com, that was the project. And it led her to think about user-owned platforms, right? Data sovereignty. And she started following Hypercore protocol, then DAT closely. This is about where we start intersecting because I got really interested in DAT way back in the day when I was working on IPFS. It's like this cool project. like, how do we store our data better in terms of the cloud? So cool. So in 2017, Nina left Berlin, packed all of her belongings in a backpack and started to live as a nomad. Later in the same year, she was invited to join a blockchain project to financially recover after building refugees work in Wizard Amigos meetups and contributing to open source without any financial support. So maintainers out there without financial support, don't worry, you are not alone. And after three years doing contracting work, she took she together with Sarah Path, that is at Sarah Path, started working on a DAT dot project, a peer-to-peer hosting for Hypercore Protocol. Now that was a lot of water under the bridge. Thank you so much for sharing that bio. What are you maintaining these days? What does your code look like? Currently, I'm building UI components, Vanilla.js UI components, because like once that dot is ready, we want people to start building UIs. Backend is going to be Hypercore or yep. like any peer-to-peer stuff. And then people will just have to quickly build some kind of UIs to connect to these kind of backends. So we don't want people to go and build all these crazy giant React apps, but we would like them to stay lean so that anyone can fork and then, you know, upgrade these things. So I'm building like micro components that have like built-in communication systems so that you can send and receive messages among components. So you can listen to, I don't know, events and yeah stuff. So this is one thing and I'm kind of, I just finished like building the service logic for our uh, that dot. So this is now kind of on hold a little bit because I'm waiting for Serapets to finish the bridge. So it's kind of, yeah, it's a lot of stuff happening. So you said this is one thing, but knowing JavaScript, that is not. That sounds like a lot of little tiny modules here and there scattered over the ecosystem. Is that right? Yep, yep, totally. How many projects would you say you maintain in the sense of like have commit access to? We make like a lot of organizations and then inside you have like a lot of repos and it's like, I don't know, like all together is probably like 20, 30 repos. But I think it's just because we like this hyper modular development so that you have a lot of small modules that they just do the one thing good instead of having one giant monorepo where you kind of like pack everything in. So that's why it sounds like a lot, but it's like little things. What do you think the size of the community is that you're working with? It depends now what do you think of the community because like I'm engaged in many different communities. One is around Wizard Amigos that we started in Berlin, which is basically like when I started learning coding in 2013, I joined through Rails Girls. And then I figure out when this kind of like summer of code that I did with Rails course finished, what do I do now? How do I stay connected to the community? So I met Sarah Path and we started building this community of meetups in Berlin. And then when we started traveling around, we were meeting new people in Taiwan or like, I don't know, in England and in the US. And we started adding all these people in the community. So this is one part of the community. All the people who 
are maybe professionals, but still want to continue learning and upgrade their skills or complete beginners. There's also parents who want to teach their kids coding. So this is like Wizard Amigos crew. And the other community is that ecosystem. So projects building on top of Hypercore. I mean, they, of course, are interconnected somehow because we are interested in the same type of topics. And there's another community that is around that dot and is kind of like touching also people who are interested in blockchain, but not in the sense of crypto buzzing nonsense, but just exploring what is maybe there also useful in this kind of ledger thing. That's really cool. It sounds like you interface with a lot of different types of people, which is fun. Parents teaching codes. It's not just people saying, I have an issue. Here's my bug. Solve it for me. It's like, no, we try to connect and have relationships with other people who are code and develop those relationships over time so that we can together form a better community of not just coders, but people. Does that sound accurate? Exactly. And like, I mean, the point of these communities is not that people come because I do stuff. It's basically I'm trying to help them do their stuff. So I think it's also like in empowerment of each other or something. So when I think of empowerment and I think of community work, I think of the massive amount of emotional labor that has to go on. So what I'm curious for you is what is the hardest part about the way that you maintain code? Is it the extra work they have to do on top of it? Is it the code itself? Is it dealing with people who open issues and then leave? I'm curious. I don't know. Like I am like a people person. I studied communication studies and all these things. So I loved being around people. So this part I don't find very difficult. I also am not like a superstar maintainer who has thousands of downloads so that people would be coming and reporting bugs and stuff. I'm lucky this is not happening. But what I think it's hard is to see that if you are just like a nice employee who goes and does the thing, you know, shows up in the office and work for some kind of corporation doing status quo things, then everything is okay. But if you're trying to follow some certain vision and build some stuff that is also not like a typical startup where you want to get rich or something, but you just want to improve things in the world and you're pushing for this, that you kind of have to think of how will you sustain all this and how will you earn money and kind of stay alive (laughs) in this system. So that's kind of the hardest, I think. As someone who runs a podcast called Sustain, I totally get that. That makes a lot of sense to me. Hey, what's the most fun that you've had doing this sort of work over the past like 10 years of coding you've been doing? Like, What's a really fun incident as, a, as someone who creates code, as people who come to your community meetups and the like? Was it just traveling around or was there anything that was really cool that you could think of that pops to mind? This refugees work project was really amazing because I was watching then all these videos, you know, about Mediterranean and all these refugees coming. And I felt like I have to just drop everything and go there and help. But then I started thinking more rationally, like, what will I actually do there? I mean, I maybe can help with something else with my skills. And like, because people were coming to Berlin and I was based in Berlin then. So I was thinking, how can I help them when they arrive? Because I moved to Berlin a couple of years earlier, I know how hard it is to start from scratch. You know, when you don't have your community, you are somebody in your country. But then when you move somewhere else, you're like nobody, nobody knows you. So you start from beginning. And I figured out back then from my story that the best is if you manage to connect to people who do same things, who kind of share values, who kind of share same interests professionally. 
So I started this refugees work app that was a simple thing, you like a marketplace, but people can post like volunteering opportunities and then refugees or newcomers can apply and just meet the locals. And when I published this, I was just like, okay, I just did some little thing and let's see what happens now. But then it really caught traction and there was like, I don't know, over a thousand people using this. And then I started meeting people in Berlin who were like, yeah, I met somebody through this and then, and, and this was like really special. Because as I said, I transitioned from social sciences and arts into coding because I wanted to get a skill. I wanted to be able to build something on my own. And this was the first time I felt the power of this, that I built something and now it's like a little robot (laughs) up on the web doing some things, not just for me, but also for others. So this was like super, super magical for me. Totally feel that. I tried to do something similar with strandedbytrump.com, which was trying to help people who were stuck in airports when he first got into office and banned people. But even better, like now at Open Collective, we have a thing called Project Ukraine or like 1K Ukraine and just giving money towards refugees from that conflict. And it's awesome to see cool comments come in. So I hear that it's super motivating and empowering. I guess it seems like you have it pretty sweet. You have some cool stuff you're working on. You got some cool friends you've been working on it with. You feel like there's input from the community and you're pretty grounded. What are you most looking forward to over the next, I don't know, five, 10 years as a maintainer? Like, What do you want to see happen to not just your craft, but your work? I would love to see more people learning to code. That's one of the reasons why I started Wizard Amigos Project, because I feel that this really is literacy of the future. Sometimes I'm talking to people and I mention like, hey, you should just like learn coding. And they're looking at me like, why would I learn coding? And then I'm kind of always remember this story, you know, like 500 years ago, there were monks who were the only ones who could read and write. And then you have like tons of farmers and they were growing their potatoes. And when they told them, hey, you should learn reading and writing. And they were like, why would I read and write? We have monks to do that. And then I tell them this story and I'm like, hey, no, we all have to learn this because it is literacy of the future, because it's not just about like making web apps. It's about automating and upgrading all sorts of sciences and skills and things that are happening around us so that we can be freer and we can do awesome stuff and be more relaxed because I also don't believe in this wage slaving eight hours to 10 hours a day life absolute nonsense. So why would we live like that? So I'm like, yeah, let's empower everyone. Let's teach everyone coding and let's jump to the next level. (laughs) Given that follow-up question, what advice do you wish people had given you when you first started coding? When you sort of knew that that was how, what was the case? Like, what do you wish people had told you to make it easier for you to learn to code? I think that they should tell me that this is not all about math, that this is more like arts. This is like, you have to be creative. You have to kind of build stuff from scratch and come up with ideas and like, this is totally not like uh, boring. I'm sitting here and I have to solve some math riddles, which you also do in between, but it's not about that. It's more like, how do I structure this? How do I wireframe the whole thing? How will people use it? Then getting feedbacks and trying to improve it again. And like, if I knew this, I would probably never go and study social sciences. I would just go straight to Coding, although it's nice, I feel that it's very important also that you have some other background because if you can join two skills, like one is more like a skill set and the other one is giving you maybe more of a worldview or something like that. And like joining some kind of skill 
or some kind of understanding of the world, like perspectives, like medicine or social science or art or whatever, or law, economics, and then kind of applying code and mixing all this together. I think this is like the best mix. I like that. It sounds like you, I believe rightly, don't take the view that a maintainer is someone who just says edit access to a repo and just commit stuff and like code is the only thing you do, right? It's not just maths. What steps do you take in your communities to ensure that people's other skills get included when they think about coding? How do you try to make people who are, say, designers or just tech writers, uh, et cetera, et cetera, feel involved in the projects that you work on? The most important thing is, I think, to ask them, not just like direct, to not just come up with like the way you want to do things, but to include them in the conversation and brainstorming. We just had like now in that ecosystem, a discussion about like, maybe we could update our logo because things have changed. And maybe this is something that I can mention also here. If somebody knows the Hypercore and that ecosystem, that was at the beginning a community and many projects grew out of it. And one of the core things in was the Hypercore protocol. But because Everybody believes in this hypermodular, small and compact and really reliable things. It was just not feasible to have like a giant organization and discussions about all this protocol. Why not making it like, you know, Muffintosh is building it. Let him just take this and do all the work around this. And then others can focus on other things. So when I joined that ecosystem, it was basically happening. It was in this process of change. So Carissa was the director then, and somehow the whole community decided that it's time maybe for community to stay almost as a consortium of, of projects who discuss interoperability, who help each other do communications, organize events, empower each other through just working together. And the projects by themselves, they have their own governance and they push the things on their own. So that ecosystem is basically really just a group of projects. There is no protocol. Sometimes people are still asking, like, is that still a protocol? That is not a protocol. That is really just a community of projects. One of the projects is Hypercore protocol, but there is also Agregor browser. There's also Beaker browser. There is also Socket Supply. And in the future, hopefully when we finish, there will be also that dot. I like that. It's been fun to watch the community grow from my perspective. I mean, I was pretty involved with IPFS, which is very, very similar to that in some approaches. So it's been cool to see this other cool community grow up alongside. And so, Nita, I just want to thank you for coming on today, talking about being a maintainer, about helping other people, about seeing it as art and not just science and math, seeing it as a creative thing, a thing that we can all explore together as humans, because it's the literacy of the future. I like that a lot. So where can people get involved with your projects? The easiest is to just follow me maybe on Twitter. I'm Nina Bresnik or Bresnik altogether. Or you can follow Sarapath or directly our projects uh, dot .org altogether or Wizard Amigos. This is also all together. Or dot underscore ecosystem. <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, it sounds like it's a lot. But it's all in a way we are all going in the same direction. We're like kind of holding hands and helping each other build this future, I think. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed that. 
you're interested in learning more about having sustainable open source in the future, you can go to sustainoss.org where there is a community of people dedicated to figuring that out. We have a discourse at discourse.sustainoss.org. We also have a Twitter at sustainoss. We also have an email podcast at sustainoss.org. If you have any thoughts or comments or questions or queries, or you have anyone you think should be on this podcast, please do get in touch. I'm always listening as well as the other panelists and hosts. You can also rate us on Spotify and on Apple. Please do so. Thank you so much. And again, if you want to hear any of the links which are brought up during this show, I've tried to get as many as I could while I was listening. And they're all on the show notes on podcast.sustainoss.org where you can find more things and how to follow Nina in her future. Nina, thank you once again. Thank you for having me. It was fun. 